Thank you for listening to our Spectator podcast. Before you start, I'm happy to announce that we have a new Spectator Christmas subscription offer over the festive period. Subscribe to the Spectator for yourself or for a loved one this Christmas, and you'll receive a copy of the magazine and full online access for £99 for one year. That's £50 off the normal rate. Plus, you'll receive a free bottle of Paul for your troubles. To access the offer, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash champagne. Hello and welcome to The Edition, the Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. It's been a protest unlike any other that China has seen. Since June, hundreds of thousands, by some estimates millions, of Hong Kongers have protested against the Chinese government. What was sparked by opposition to an extradition bill that would allow Hong Kongers to face trial in the mainland has now turned into a six-month-long pro-democracy movement. So how significant are these protests, and have they got any closer to their goal? I'm joined by Professor Kerry Brown, China expert at King's College London, and Isabella Steger, journalist for Courts in Hong Kong to discuss. Izzy, in all your years reporting from Hong Kong, have you ever seen the city like this? Um, no, of course not. And the last time that people always talk about that it was anything like this was 1967 during the riots. And um, obviously that was a very long time ago. And what's happening now is, I suppose, years or maybe decades of frustrations of all kinds bubbling up since. And, um, you know, I know that people always talk about the violence, but there's also, you know, just a level of politicization and activism and just conscientiousness I guess bubbling up everywhere that's also the other sort of thing that you don't see but is the other thing that something I've never seen in this city before. Kerry, obviously China is no stranger to pro-democracy protests. The May 4th protests in the early 20th century and the Tiananmen protests in 1989 are two examples that come to mind. So how significant are this year's protests in China's political history? Well I suppose the important thing is the way the outside world sees these protests a place which was once quite stable is now seen as being pretty unstable. And I suppose it's a really bad advert for what governance looks like on the Beijing model because this should be an unproblematic territory. I mean, it's Chinese broadly. It's been part of China's sovereign territory for over two decades. And yet it is clearly not working very easily for Beijing's sort of model of slow appropriation. I know that Beijing's changed hugely in the last 20 years. The handover was 1997, and I don't think anyone expected China to change so much in that time. So there's this big asymmetry. But I think this is a bad model, and certainly from Taiwan, which is, of course, quite at the heart of this, it's not a great advert for what it is to try and have governance with Chinese characteristics in a territory which is not straightforwardly part of Chinese sovereign territory. When you say that gradual appropriation, do you mean that Beijing does intend to erode one country, two systems? Well, I think they always thought of that as a sort of legalistic political strategy. I think the assumption in Beijing was that Chinese identity would trump everything else. And I think that has been proved not to be the case. What's fascinating about observing Hong Kong is this enormous issue of a distinctive local identity. Mm. That identity is problematic because I don't think there's leadership in the different groups that are opposing Beijing broadly. 
But there's certainly a sense that there is a thing to be called Hong Kongese and it matters. And Beijing doesn't have an easy way of dealing with that. And Izzy, there were local district elections last month in which the pro-democracy candidates won a landslide. Have things died down since then? I mean, has the boil been lanced? Yeah, it has. I think it just sort of gave everyone room to take a breather, just also because the few weeks leading up to it were particularly intense and traumatic for everybody. That was the weeks of the um, university sieges and just like endless days of street battles and Molotov cocktails and police violence. So I think the election was a way, you know, for people to feel quite validated, I think, you know, about the protests that have been happening for months now and fighting against the sort of government narrative, both from Hong Kong and Beijing, that you don't have broad support, you know, everyone just thinks these are rioters, you know, all this is like fake news. And so, yeah, the election gave people the chance to uh, regroup, recuperate. But as we speak, just a few days ago, violence flared up again. So I think that it's um it's unpredictable. And it, I think it would be silly and naive to think that it couldn't flare up again, just because there is so much anger. But I think that you know, running six months straight is a really long time for people to be out all the time. So I think it's natural there's a bit of a lull. Yeah. And Kerry, what, what will Beijing do about the situation? There were fears of a re- repeat of Tiananmen, of a military clampdown, but that hasn't happened so far. So what is it doing about the situation? Well, I think that they have basically sat this out because they've let the groups they don't particularly like in Hong Kong have rope to hang themselves, basically. I think that's their strategy the local elections a month or so ago were problematic because that gives authentic evidence for a voice of opposition because most of the Mm. votes seem to be for pro-democracy parties or at least not pro-Beijing parties. Mm. But I think that Beijing is probably aware that there are things that it wants from Hong Kong which are stovepipe, you know, basically it wants the finance and it wants things that are in its interests. But I think it's always regarded Hong Kong as a contaminated space. It's contaminated by its colonial history. It's contaminated by disloyalty to Beijing. And this has all been manifest in the last few months. And I think that they're basically cutting their losses. I don't think that they're going to send military unless something absolutely terrible happens because they can deal with it by proxies, which is pretty much what they've done. What do you mean by proxies? So agents that work for them. I mean, there's been rumours that they've got people from the triads and people like that to work for them. But I mean, generally getting the administration in Hong Kong just to keep a lid on the security situation. I don't think, I mean, the symbolism of the PLA getting involved in Hong Kong is just too toxic. Mm. I mean, I think it would be, as I say, I mean, according to the basic law, I think you can summon help in if the administration wants to and Carrie Lam could. But I think it's just too costly. There are also rumours that Beijing is now pivoting towards Shenzhen, a city on its mainland. Do you see that happening as well? You know, economic attention being diverted from Hong Kong into a mainland city? Some kinds. I mean, Shanghai has been talked of as a finance centre that compete with Hong Kong for about 15 years. But there are certain things that Hong Kong continues to have. I mean, it's an important place for outward investment for you know its finance market i mean it doesn't matter yeah but these sort of things have continued no matter what even though the protests have been happening every day on the whole these things have continued i think they will continue it is this issue of very important local issues of inequality uh, huge issues with this this is the most expensive city on the mm. planet you know to own and um, you know kind of property these social issues don't seem to be addressed at all. I mean, I know it's complicated. I guess what we've learned in the last few months is that the administration in Hong Kong has no real power. 
Izzy, a lot of the protesters this year sort of cite their involvement or inspiration from the Umbrella Revolution of 2014. In that instance, Beijing didn't really do much to placate the protesters. They sort of just fizzled out, but obviously they come back and worse this year. Do you think Beijing risks something like that, another flare-up, if it doesn't you know, tackle the root of protester problems and soon? Well, I think Beijing should know. I think everyone else seems to know. And I guess I would also be interested in Kerry's um, perspective on this as someone who knows the sort of Beijing equation of this much more. Like what really is the intelligence that they're getting or not getting? You know, are they being told the truth about what's happening or are they just choosing to ignore it? Are they, do they censor just like they censor everything else in the country? Because you ask a good question, you know, if they had seen what had happened in 2014, they shouldn't have underestimated the um, level of disaffection, not just livelihood issues, but, you know, it's not really just about livelihood, property prices or anything. That definitely plays a role, but, you know, it's a bit reductive to say that that's the root of it, which is also sometimes the government's line. But again, you know, Carrie Lam, she's in Beijing and it's just the same stuff over and over again. You know, we resolutely support the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region government. You know, we support police to restore order. And at least publicly, there's never any sort of innovative, creative ways, flexibility in sort of dealing with this situation. So it's, I mean, it's really hard to tell from these sort of public things. I mean, for all you know, she could be gone in the next week or a few months or something. That's just the nature of, you know, how this regime functions. But yeah, once again, it's hard to know what Beijing actually knows. And if they do know the truth about what's happening here, do they have the capacity to deal with it? Kerry, do policymakers in Beijing know what's going on? (laughs) So... I think that they see the truth they want to see. To them, this is interpreted through a particular lens, which Mm. is the greater narrative of China's renaissance and standing up and, you know, 2021, the centennial goal, and nothing can disrupt that. So I think they probably see it not maybe as centrally as the world outside. That's possibly a miscalculation because, I mean, I suspect the long-term issue of Hong Kong is going to be that it's... It seems to me that it has made the issue of Taiwan, which is the big thing, you know, that's the big, big, big thing, kind of almost unresolvable. I, I mean, one country, two systems is one country, and then the two systems, if you behave, and otherwise, you know, nothing if you don't. And I think in Taiwan, what we're going to see on the 11th of um, January is Tsai Ing-wen get a very healthy, you know, the current incumbent, the president, who is working for a party that historically has supported greater independence, getting a pretty handsome majority. And I think that's the payback. And and that impact, I think, will be substantial and profound. And Izzy, one of the differences of this year's protest compared to the Umbrella Movement is a protester's use of violence. The Umbrella Revolution was dubbed the politest protests ever, whereas this year, as you mentioned, there have been Molotov cocktails as well as petrol bombs and businesses perceived as pro-Beijing have been trashed and burnt. Then there are the conflicts between civilians. I saw a pretty gruesome video of a pro-Beijing man being set on fire in an argument with protesters. So is is peaceful protest overrated? And is violence the way to get a government like Beijing to listen? There's so much discussion about that. But honestly, I think um, 
in a movement of this size and um, obviously as everyone knows is leaderless by design I think uh, and also because anyone who could be a leader is in jail or risks being in jail there's going to be people who support violence people who don't people who are willing to perform it I think that goes for any social movement anywhere in the world and perhaps 2014 set a level of expectation for sort of the politeness that um, maybe was misjudged or you know doesn't exist anymore people are just so much more angry now than they were back then I don't know but I mean all I can say is that even with all this violence that's been going on that the government has obviously said either is funded by the US or you know by framing the protesters as terrorists basically literally using that word terrorists even with all that people seem to either support the protests or dislike the government and the police more than they dislike what the commotion and the disruptions that the protesters have caused. Kerry, I mean, Izzy brings out an interesting point there, this narrative of foreign interference that is the Americans behind it. I've heard it a lot as well. You know, you're a former British diplomat. How should the West navigate this, you know, murky waters with China when when the narrative is so strong that, you know, Mm. this anti-imperialism that is very historical in China? Well, in 1967, during the Cultural Revolution, the last big upheaval there, uh, it was the Communist Party of China that was accused of fermenting problems in Hong Kong. So it's deeply <laughs> ironic now. Uh, this is payback, I guess. I don't know what we... So certainly the UK with its historic links, every six months it produces a report. The last one was quite hard-hitting. It was quite clear, the parliamentary report about what was happening in Hong Kong. Maybe with the election of this new government, there'll be a stronger voice on Hong Kong. It's not been that clear recently, but maybe that'll get stronger I suspect, though, the question is, what what are we offering? I mean, apart from moral support, the fight for leadership with these stu- uh, not these protesting groups, some of whom are students, but protesting groups, they, they have to decide what their narrative is. And that's been one of the big issues. That you've got different groups with mm. different voices. I know it's easy to say, it's super easy to say, but unless there is one or two that have a cohesion about them, they will be picked apart. They're dealing with a entity in Beijing that doesn't lose, right? I mean, the Communist Party of China doesn't lose. And it will wait it out. It will just sit there being very passive until the moment when it might be able to close these things down or people just get exhausted or it sidelines Hong Kong. But it doesn't lose. Izzy, finally, I mean, do you think the protesters have achieved anything? They have their five demands, one of which was met when the extradition bill was shelved. But of their other demands and of their wider protest towards democracy in general, do you think they have achieved anything? Well, to Kerry's point, actually, about, you know, this is an opponent that never loses. I mean, I think, I know it's cliche to say so, but obviously, stranger things have happened in history and various regimes have fallen and people have um, not expected that and so on and so forth. I think people here are completely cognizant of that. But I think that when they look back on just these six months alone, um, you know, I see a lot of discussion, people saying, how could we ever even have thought that, uh, six months ago, you know, people around the world would be, you know, talking about mm. these protests, protest movements around the world would be learning from it, that it could get things like the NBA and now the Premier League, you know, involved in, well, not Hong Kong per se with Premier League, but sort of China 
more broadly, you know, just a lot of these issues are, um, you know, being manifested now because I guess the world is more aware of what China is doing in its um, disparate parts. And, um, you know, I can't say that the protesters set out to do that, but a lot of things also happen that help the narrative of the protesters along. For example, everything that's happening with Huawei, Xinjiang, um, as Kerry was mentioned, Taiwan, people are putting the spotlight on that because of the election. Everything about all the censorship stuff that keeps coming up, Hollywood. I mean, just so many issues are just coming to the surface now. And I think the protesters, some of them think that they played a role in doing that. But I think they also realize that the Hong Kong issue is one of, you know, a big puzzle, many moving pieces. And they, you know, they would like the West and the US and the UK to do something for them. But they also know that a lot of it is down to luck and I guess just waiting for their next big break. And I think, you know, they saw the NBA thing as like a lucky break for them. And I guess they're just waiting for the next one to come. Izzy and Kerry, thanks very much. And thank you for listening. Do join us again on Monday when my colleague Will Moore talks Christmas, board games and poetry with Giles Brandreth and Mark Mason. Music.